0: Hello and welcome to Fashion and Voibles. On this episode, a green to die for. Today, you can walk into any old clothes shop and see a whole rainbow of colors from pastel pinks to powder blues to luminous yellows and earthy deep reds. We're pretty spoiled for choice, however, It has only been quite recent that we've been able to produce such a wide array of coloured garments. Historically, we've tried over and over again to try and replicate the colours we see in nature, as well as create some of our own. But this longing search for colour didn't come without some deadly consequences. We all know Victorian England was booming with the Industrial Revolution as manufacturing and scientific discoveries began to change the landscape of not just business, but also inside the Victorian home. Out were the minimal, simple ways of the early 1800s, and in came the decades of abundance. A well-off Victorian home, looking almost like a -a bric-a-brac store with material goods galore, boasting with a wealth of needless commodities and goods. Because when the new institutions of machine-made goods combined with cheap human labour came about, why wouldn't you take advantage and fill your house with pointless things just to show off your social status? Ah, Times really haven't changed that much, have they? But I digress. In his 1866 lecture, Traffic... Artist John Ruskin states that what we like determines what we are. In other words, in Victorian England, the material possessions you favour and the performed gestures you are drawn to are a direct reflection of exactly who you are. He goes on to make these imagined interactions, saying, You there, my friend in the rags, with the unsteady gait, what do you like? This person, Ruskin has configured, replies, A pipe and a quarter of gin. And Ruskin then says, I know you. From just a couple of very face value statements, Ruskin believes he then knows exactly who that person is, amplifying this Victorian notion that one needed all this material excess to present to almost perform who they wanted to position themselves as in Britain's rigid social hierarchy. This need for excessive consumption and pressures of social structures can give us some insight as to why the Victorians would not be put off their material goods and lavish clothes, even if they knew it was poisonous. And that brings us to the infamous pigment of sheel green. green, which went by many other names, such as Emerald, Schweinfurt, Paris or Parrot Green, was made by mixing potassium and white arsenic in a solution of copper vitriol. And no, you didn't just mishear me. I did indeed say arsenic. Yes, that extremely poisonous chemical element. Yeah, that one. It was the brainchild of Swedish pharmaceutical chemist, Carl Wilhelm Scheele, who recorded his findings in his 1778 paper on green pigment. He died shortly after in 1786 at the age of 43, from, of course, inhaling the poisonous gases he created. And yet Scheele Green took off with great enthusiasm from the consumer. Its potential to be a whole range of glorious greens, from dusty olive, to bright lime, to rich emerald, had never been seen before in previous natural dyes. It was something new and exciting, so brilliantly eye-catching. How could one resist the temptation? The green pigment was used in a whole array of products, from wallpaper, to children's toys, to sweets, to paints, to jelly, and of course to clothing and accessories. In not only Victorian England, but throughout Europe, these new exciting vivid greens were extremely popular. These pigments were used in stunning headdresses and accessories of artificial leaves and flowers. These could be seen in shop windows throughout major cities like London and Paris. In 1959, there were over 900 artificial flower wholesalers and shops in the Saint-Denis and Saint-Martin districts alone. They were then to be bought by the affluent bourgeoisie to accentuate their updues and bring a little bit of that feminine natural beauty of the luscious outdoors into the ballrooms. The green dye was also used on extravagant ball gowns they swept across the ballroom floor as their wearers danced the night away. This colour was so new and thrilling, it exuded a lavish wealth, while, like the flower headdresses, had a very elegant, natural presentation. But these garments were of course packed full of arsenic. A ball gown made with 20 yards of fabric, but have used about 900 grains of arsenic in the dyeing process. As it was very rare to fix dye to fabric, meaning a method used to ensure the dye won't come off the fabric, all that lovely arsenic was free to disperse from the ball gown. In a single evening, a ball gown would shed about 60 grains of dry arsenic powder into the air to give you a bit of perspective of what that strange measurement actually means in practice. Bear with me, this is going to get a tad mathematical. A single grain of arsenic is 64.8 milligrams and direct exposure to just 300 milligrams of arsenic is lethal for an adult. So about four to five grains is lethal. And that takes us back to the fact that these ball gowns could easily shed 60 grains of arsenic in one evening, which is twelve times the amount needed for a lethal dose. While wearing one of these glorious gowns that were the height of fashion, you were unknowingly poisoning not only yourself, but everyone around you. And just take a moment to think, Of how many of the ladies in those ballrooms donned their fake flowers and wore their exquisite dresses. Now that's a lot of green. To be in one of those ballrooms was to be surrounded by and constantly coming in contact with lethal arsenic. But what were the effects on the wearer? Were they sudden? Did those who dressed head to toe in shield green have grievous bouts of sickness, dramatically fainting from the constant poisoning? Well, quite the contrary. Symptoms could start anywhere from a little light-headedness to a patch of rash red skin. Ailments that could be put down to any number of causes at the time. Even more severe cases were often mistaken for syphilis. However, over time, the effects of arsenic became a little more prevalent. There were cases of skin blisters, difficulty breathing, and even fingernails peeling off. In 1871, a lady who purchased a box of green-coloured gloves at a well-known and respectable house suffered from open wounds around her fingernails. And guess what? Those gloves turned out to have been coloured with arsenical salts. However, this does not mean those mild afflictions were what everyone who came into contact with arsenic experienced. The lower class workers in the factories are who suffered the greatest, as is the way throughout almost all of history. Those that worked in the factories were constantly surrounded by the poison. Breathing breathing it in, absorbing it through their skin, touching it to their mouths their noses their eyes after a long day of exhausting work they would return to their homes with their clothes and hair covered in the poisonous powder which then settled and collected in every nook and cranny of their homes they had no escape from the deadly poison this means the effects of the dyes used in gowns these women and girls were making along with the dusting of shield-green powder on paper leaves for hair accessories, were far more formidable. When arsenic came into contact with the body, it functioned as an escrotic, a substance that exerts a caustic effect on the skin, producing sores, scabs and slawing of the damaged tissue, as noted by Wharton in the arsenic century. ange Gabriel Maxime Venoy a physician to the higher-ups of 19th-century French society, such as Emperor Napoleon III, conducted his own research on the arsenical poisoning in the factory workplace. Despite his reputation in high society, he ventured into the paper flower making workshops in France. The resulting article gave graphic depictions of how this beautiful green dust was in fact a deadly poison. For example, he notes, From the ulceration of the green hands with yellow nails, illustrated in the redness and peeling of the skin around the nostrils, the lips, and deep, white-rimmed cancerous scars on workers' legs that look almost like craters on the surface of the skin. Although the damage to the workers was severe, the production of arsenical products continued. That is, until it notably started taking effect on the wealthy wearers of these garments. As usual, the issues concerning the lower classes were brushed under the rug and given little concern by those in higher society. Again, not all too dissimilar from today, don't you think? Once rumours began spreading of the irritant or even possible poisonous properties of Sheil Green, and wealthier women were noticing blisters here and falling off fingernails there, some women's eyes began to turn to the production factories to see if those rumours were true. If so, something must be done about it, thought one woman in particular, after hearing of the death of 19-year-old paper flower maker Matilda Schurer in 1861. Her name? Miss Nichols a member of the Ladies' Sanitary Association in London. Miss Nichols led the charge when she published an article covering the conditions she encountered when visiting the workshops where artificial flowers were made. She wrote of one girl who had been forced to keep working with the deadly pigment till her face was a mass of sores and she was almost blind. There was uproar. Miss Nicholls' affluent readers began to protest such horrid working conditions, and this led to their commission of Dr. A. W. Hoffman, a famed analytical chemist, to conduct an investigation into the dyes and pigments used on these floral headdresses. His results went out to the public in a London Times article titled, The Dance of Death. However, just because various groups and many individuals began to speak out about the danger of arsenic the fight against the deadly dye was far from over those in positions of power especially in england were extremely reluctant to acknowledge the dangers of shield green even highly respected artist designer and wallpaper maker william morris denounced the claims stating in an 1885 letter, "'A greater folly is hardly possible to imagine. The doctors were bitten with fever.' He then went on to mention that he "'used only the dyes which were natural and simple' in his wallpapers." But funnily enough, William Morris also owned a huge number of arsenic mines, and in England, his arsenic mines also produced the most profit. He was well aware of the many workmen in his mines that suffered from arsenic poisoning, yet denied it all just so he could keep making a big old profit at the expense of many lives. But with growing awareness and consumers taking their money elsewhere, Morris and his counterparts could only hold out for so long By the late 1800s, next to no products were still made using arsenic. Consumers began to turn away from the vivid greens they now associated with the deadly poison, even if it had taken them almost a hundred years to notice and accept the dangers of their prized material possessions. The people had forced the hand of manufacturing industry, and shield green became a thing of the past. This is not to say the stigma around the colour disappeared with it. As said by one of the most powerful women in the house of Chanel horticulture, seamstresses don't like green. And who knows how much arsenic is still out there. Perhaps you happen upon an old scrap of fabric, a roll of wallpaper, or even a book that's a bedazzling bright green. Be careful how you hold it. You might have just found a relic of the great arsenic poisoning. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not come over and join me on Instagram, at Fashion and foibles Podcast? There, I'll be sharing information and resources from this episode. Got any questions, or just fancy a chat? You can find me over on Twitter, at Eleanor Anwen. And with that said... Until next time.